obviously not every situation is going to be the same, but I think having an understanding of where you're willing to spend also where you're willing to just like give it a shot. It's like really important. So for anybody who's been listening to Bite Size for some time, creative being the variable is a statement largely agreed upon by myself and most of my guests, whether that's a brand founder or a marketer. And let's break down what effective marketing is. It's images, videos, copy, structured in a way to drive an action. To develop a creative that drives action, you have to understand creative performance and use that as a feedback loop into your creative strategy, your media buying, your creative optimization teams. At Fly Performance, we use Motion. So Motion is a creative reporting platform that visualizes creative performance and uses really easy to understand metrics that are mapped to the consumer funnel. So from thumb stop ratio to ROAS, making it so easy to understand not just performance, but where you need to optimize. Not only that, it's a huge time saver. We estimated that since using Motion across the agency, we've saved our teams two days a week from manual data pools allowing them to test and analyze creative far more efficiently and get winning creatives and really help drive performance. Creative is the variable. What's up, Dylan? So hi, Daniel. How we doing? I'm doing amazing, man. I'm doing amazing. I'm, um, I'm super stoked to have you on the podcast. Uh, before we kind of dive in, um, I've actually known Dylan for, we were just saying this, since 2017, right? I think so. It might have been earlier, just from the gym days. Yeah, oh yeah, it might have been, yeah. So we, our history goes back to pumping iron in Gold's Gym uh, down in Venice. Uh, Dylan was always far more jacked and aesthetic than me. So, um, you know, I, yeah, right. <laughs> I tried to get some of his knowledge and insight. Um, and then we came together on some kind of digital marketing opportunities and projects. I went on to then found Mint and you went on um, to do what you're, you've been doing and are currently doing, which we'll dive into into a second. To start off, great to see your progress and everything you've been doing over the last couple of years. Really kind of inspiring and uh, super excited to dive in today. Why don't we start off um, with, I kind of know this based on our history, and you can go back to the gym days if you'd like, um, but what's your kind of five five minute kind of career story of, you know, where you started and, and what you're doing today? Awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Kind of crazy to think that, you know, this relationship was uh, started you know, just from, uh, I guess, an, an excitement around fitness and, uh, you know, both of us just kind of got to do our own things, but, uh, there's that kind of like, uh, I don't know, we could talk about this at some sense, but like that bridge between fitness and entrepreneurship. And I think there's like a lot to be said about just like, you know, waking up and going after it, getting after it every day in the gym and how that essentially like translates over to, to business. Um, anyway, again, we can unpack that in different ways later on, but, uh, yeah. So, Prior to starting Chummy Stacks, what I'm doing right now, selling peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. I was in digital marketing. <clears throat> I built out a boutique uh, agency, mostly focusing on CPG and e-commerce brands. Uh, where I found my niche was in Facebook, Instagram marketing, and then also chatbot marketing too, some automation type stuff. Uh, very basic in that sense. But yeah, that, I did that for about four years. Uh, again, mostly just focusing on e-commerce. And then uh, I just happened to start noticing that there was uh, kind of a crazy trend happening in food and beverage where brands were just popping up that were recreating traditional products with elevated nutritionals and better fewer ingredients lists. And it just got me thinking, you know, like I, I, I like to eat snacks and obviously I'm a big foodie. And 
I was just looking for opportunity. And so I just kind of went to the drawing board, started thinking of like all the products that I like to eat as a kid, where I saw opportunity for disruption. And uh, obviously I landed on the Uncrustable and and for good reason, right? Uh, the Uncrustable has been around for 20 plus years in the United States, primarily the United States product, but you know, they're between their household penetration as well as just their parent company, uh, Smuckers, there's, there's just a lot of opportunity for them to sell those products. And yeah, I think in 2019, when I was thinking about doing this, they did like $360 million in sales of just peanut butter, great peanut butter, strawberry sandwiches, and and primarily just in like conventional and like mass market grocers. And so where I saw the opportunity was in this kind of weird white space of like this evolved consumer um, who really likes to shop at like Whole Foods, Air Ones of the world, the Sprouts of the world, where they didn't have a product like this. And mostly because the Uncrustable specifically has ingredients in their product that doesn't prohibit or prohibits them from being able to sell their product into those stores. So my thought was like, all right, I don't necessarily need to like compete directly with them just yet. Um, it's more so like, how can I create opportunity based off where they can't play? And so e-commerce direct consumer was where my bread and butter was in terms of being a digital marketer. And I figured if I could build the brand loud enough on social media, I could get the attention of a Whole Foods, a Scratch, whatever, uh, and launch our product later and then start building, you know, more of our, our, our uh, retail brick and mortar kind of presence. So I hope that kind of answers the question a little bit, but obviously we can continue to unpack that. No, definitely. Um, no, I appreciate that. And we'll kind of center, a, you know, I think CPG within e-commerce or just brand building is kind of a beast all within itself, right? And kind of having uh, some experience of that with with the brand I'm part of, Spudzy, whereas a lot of like the, our agency clients are more kind of, it's, it's not, we don't verticalize around CPG. But actually, I want to double back on something you mentioned, going from a service-based business to a product-based business or product-led business. You see this time and time again, and I've I've been victim of this mentality a little bit myself of, well, I really understand marketing. I really understand e-commerce. Why am I making all these other brands so much money through my skill set? Why don't I just start a product? And I think vice versa, right? Like, you know, product guys saying, well, we've really understood how to scale our own brand. We could offer these services or, or whatever. What's been your experience of going from service-based to, to product-led? Uh, what are the nuances or differences or challenges of going from one type of business to the other? And I, I want to avoid like what's easier because I think they both are challenging in their own rights, but what's what's been your experience with with it? Yeah, the service-based business was, was great to an extent, um, good cash flow, low overhead. Whereas on the flip side, I think some of the more challenging aspects of having your own brand and building your own brand is is understanding just like your overhead as well as you know how to manage cash flow properly. You know, we kind of talked about this pre-recording is just the naivety around just jumping in and doing something. There's benefits and there's you know there's, there's cons obviously, and I, I think kind of understanding just like what it's going to take in order to be able to build a brand that's product based is is really important prior to getting into it. And I'll be the first to tell you that. Yeah, I jumped into the deepest part of the pool and was just like, fuck it, I'm going to try to figure out how to tread water as long as I need to. And, and granted, yeah, we've been lucky in some different ways uh, and we've been able to continue to like grow this business. But man, I, I didn't know what it was going to be like when I came to like ordering inventory and raw materials and then understanding that like, you know, you, you buy, you know, our, 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 our powders for our jams in, in March and we're not actually going to see payment off of that raw material purchase until like, August, September, potentially, given the way that, you know, relationships with grocery stores and distributors work. So really having a better understanding of that, I think would have helped us quite a bit early on. But yeah, as you know, and as you can imagine, they're, they're totally different. You know, being able to just sell a product online and market through Instagram, Facebook is 
it's not easy by any means, but once you nail down that skill, you know, you're, you're probably off on, onto a good, good path there. Whereas building a brand, it's, it's managing that aspect of it. It's managing the operation side of it. And it's managing building the brand too. So there was just a lot more, or there are a lot more things that I have to focus on and my team has to focus on in order to make sure everything kind of comes together as one. And in those early days, like you mentioned, how did you learn how to do that, right? Because I think maybe a lot of people have an idea of a product, but finding a manufacturer or like figuring out how to even think about inventory and where to order from or design for packaging and labels. Was it literally just a case of Google and <laughs> searching or what was your kind of pathway into it? I mean, that's a great question. I think in a sense, uh, this is just where the entrepreneur kind of comes out and like your ability is just to be kind of gritty and just, you know, think that not necessarily that you know all the answers by any means, but you're willing to figure out whatever it takes or do whatever it takes to figure out, you know, those kind of answers. And and yeah, I, I mean, we, we had zero experience in food and beverage. I never made a food product or really even like sold a food product ever. But where I just kind of saw the opportunity was just doing it our, ourselves and figuring out how to just graduate into those new opportunities like co-manufacturers and you know outsourcing different things. But uh, yeah, when we first launched, I opened up a commercial kitchen in downtown Los Angeles about a month and a half prior to our, our, our launch date. Uh, and we just started making sandwiches as if you would in your own kitchen. Um, boxed them all up, shipped them out to friends and just saw what it would look like when they got delivered. And, you know, I'm not going to lie, they, they, they all look terrible. Like, I, I didn't know what I was doing from a logistics perspective. I was shipping, you know, <laughs> refrigerated peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in, you know, a mylar foil packaging within a shipping box with like a couple of like 12 ounce ice packs with no insulation. Ground, nonetheless. And you just assume that's going to show up and it's still great. And no, it doesn't. It, it barely ever does. And so, you know, but like doing those things forces you to continue to learn, right? And you're constantly, you know, the, I think the mindset is like, focus on building the business, but get in the weeds and look internally in the business as much as you need to in order to continue to obviously make things better, but never get caught up in the weeds, right? So we would always just like dissect everything that we were doing. So like their operations in the kitchen, for instance, yeah, we laugh and call ourselves the Albert Einstein's of peanut butter and jelly sandwich making because we tried a hundred different ways on how to make these things to get the most output for our input. And I'm not gonna lie, that's, that's 100% factual. Like we we did it, we were in it all the time trying to figure out how to make more sandwiches. And uh, yeah, we could crack the code here and there. Uh, cracked the code well enough to where we then were able to, you know, essentially like 5X our production overnight. And I was able to take that, that model, uh, package it up into a PowerPoint and then go to all these different manufacturers around the country that did anything from like frozen pizzas to empanadas anything frozen related and pretty much ask them to, you know, manufacture our products. And so, you know, granted we had some like good sales from online. We had, you know, Whole Foods that wanted to bring us on. So there was like some good like attributes to where we were with the business that allowed us to be able to also scale up. But yeah, I, I mean, a lot of it is just like really looking in and just like figuring it out as if you're an engineer, even if you're not, but thinking about it from a logical perspective of like, if I did this, can I potentially yield this? And trying that time and time over allows you to like obviously make some you know some small wins and those small wins obviously you know what that does to your mind in terms of just feeling a lot more accomplished um, and you kind of lean on that for motivation just to continue to think that you are smart enough or you're at least smart enough to find out the answers it's not from what you're doing it's sure for somebody else that you might you know meet or know yeah definitely and it goes back to you, you kind of mentioned it we were chatting before the call like that that naivety sometimes helps you because really it's like you got an idea what have you got to lose you'll kind of figure it out <laughs> so you, you kind of covered this a little bit in your in your answer but maybe to to kind of refine the point you know leveraging your experience now 
right? And and looking at maybe some of the misconceptions of starting a brand, maybe specifically in the CPG vertical, what advice would you give or what would you maybe do differently now with the experience that you gained that, that might give some inspiration or, or stuff to people in a similar position? I, I do think being an IDHeap is like one of the best things that really ever happened to me uh, when it came to like starting this type of business, just because if I knew what I do now, I mean, and I'm sure a lot of other CPG founders would probably say this, uh, but I, I probably wouldn't do this. Like, I, I it, it, it was way harder than I ever anticipated. Uh, but, you know, kind of staying steadfast in those moments and, you know, kind of relying on like the people I had around me, my abilities to problem solve, uh, my, my abilities to like essentially stay, stay self-motivated, I think were a, a lot of the contributing factors as to like how we continue to figure out how to, you know, tread water. Um, and, and I'll continue to lean on tread water as like, kind of my, my North star in a sense, just because it kind, of, it kind of comes back to that whole, the fitness thing and the relatability of it. It's just the, to be physically capable as well as mentally capable to go up against some of the hardest things that you will never anticipate or imagine is, it's really difficult. And to be able to make strong decisions and imperfect decisions in those moments is absolutely crucial. And so knowing that like you have a good head on your shoulders, but you also have good outside soundboards to be able to bounce these different situations and problems too is really important and so a lot of that then comes to like fundraising and you know getting good people in your corner to help you continue to move down this journey is obviously crucial and i think you know focusing on your network and figuring out how to fundraise i think is will be absolutely crucial for anybody that's trying to get into cpg because as we all know today the economy is incredibly soft and it's very difficult to raise money we're you know in the fundraising winter, if you will. But, uh, you know, that, that, that's only dependent on, you know, your network and your abilities to find capital, right. And to, and get people to buy in on what it is that you're doing. And so I think like a lot of it really does come down to that mental component of just like staying true to yourself, but also staying very much like dedicated on figuring out and figuring out how to problem solve. So I, I know that's not really like a, a, an answer that's easy to like really grasp, but really just like really playing into the strengths of the mind, I think, it did really help me a lot over the course of the last three years. I think it was such an important part of entrepreneurship and what people should understand about entrepreneurship is, you know, again, you you discussed it, same for me. What I perceived to be the challenges weren't the challenges and the challenges that I did face were far harder than anything I'd ever faced before. And I think there's a couple of things to note. One, you're not unique. It doesn't mean you're going to fail. That's just what it requires of you because true of every single person I spoke to on this podcast, my circle of friends who are all entrepreneurs, a lot of them far more successful if you look at the checks and balances than, than I am. That's just what it takes. I actually, you know, I don't want to go too much on this, but I heard Alex Hormozzi. I, one of the few things I really like that he says is just hard is just what hard is. I think where people can maybe come unstuck is when they think this is exceptionally hard just for me, right? That mindset I think is a is a limiting belief. That's just what it feels like to build something from scratch. And I think if you can attach that mindset and just have like resilience and realize that you are growing, you are making forward steps as long as you continue through it and just understanding, well, this is just what it takes. This is just what it feels like. If you accept that, I think it makes it not easier, but at least you understand this isn't only uniquely hard for me. But so many people go through the, go through similar challenges. Absolutely, yeah. I, I think in general, just like removing the ego from the situation is like incredibly beneficial. Knowing that like you might not be the smartest person in the room, but like you have people around you that are incredibly intelligent in a specific thing that might specifically affect one aspect of your business. 
it's like really important to just like swallow your pride and like ask for help. Like majority of the people out there that you associate yourself with as you're building a brand similar to ours is that everybody wants to help. And you, you, you find people that have the skills and the knowledge of doing it before you. And their biggest thing is like, they want to pay it forward. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think like just seeking that out and just also just understanding that like, you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. And that's a, that's a huge benefit and a, and a huge like characteristic aspect too. I agree. You mentioned fundraising there, actually. I'm keen to get your perspective on one, what do you think the future of venture within kind of like e-commerce or brands is? As you mentioned, the, we're kind of in a bit of a, a downturn or a winter right now. What do you think the future looks like? This is probably something that I speak to the most to founders uh, about, uh, mostly just because I, I think we've done a good job at fundraising. And for some context, I, I didn't come from a, a wealthy family. I, all the money that I made from doing digital marketing is all the money that I put into Chubby Sacks. I had about $50,000, my own money. I was able to raise some friends and family earlier to kind of match that. But, you know, I, I, again, being naive, didn't know anything. And so within like three months, I, I pretty much was like out of business. Like I, I lost all my money. I actually, I have screenshots I've saved in my phone of like the negative dollars that I had in every single personal bank account, as well as like my business bank accounts, as well as my credit card. And it was a horrific view. But, you know, again, just staying you know, true to myself and staying steadfast on what it is that I believed in, I was able to start collecting checks and keeping the doors open. And and I mentioned it to you is that you know, we've been in business for close to three years now. Yeah, I guess like there's like that period where we got here with the season six from Smuckers that I had to like kind of close down business for a little bit. But in a sense, it's been like two and a half to three years. And uh, on those um, that time, I, I pretty much had to raise like fifty to hundred thousand dollars every month. So it's like twenty four to thirty months essentially. It, it, we have to raise fifty to hundred thousand dollars in order to keep the lights on. And so you think about that in terms of, you know, going to an investor and being like, Hey, this, these are all the reasons why you should invest in me. And then they, you know, happen to ask you about what your cash flow looks like right now. And it's like, you got to figure out ways to like, make it seem that you're not desperate for that cash. You can't go into that room and tell an investor, Hey, I got 30 days left before the business goes out. I need you to send me that check ASAP. Like that, that ain't going to fly. Uh, so navigating those conversations and, and going into these conversations, knowing what you have, either it be a brand that has a lot of hype around it, really good operations, a mixture of both, because obviously that's incredibly important, but also having the confidence and knowing that like, hey, it doesn't matter what the situation is, either it be, I need to raise money or we need to figure out how to build a machine. I'm going to figure it out and I'm going to figure out ways to figure it out or utilize my my network to figure it out. And I think having all those things kind of come together and still walking into a room you know, with the confidence and and the vision and, and the character to get somebody here to invest in you all while now your back's up against the wall if you don't oh you know, get that check, like business is over. I, yeah, I, I, it's hard to really explain. I, I mean, it's one of the most powerful feelings, but it's also one of the most scariest feelings because you're desperate and you can't show desperate. So how do you, how do you showcase yourself in a light in which somebody's like, fuck, I can't wait to invest in that guy, you know? And, and I think, I don't know if it's a skill to be learned or what, but I think we've done it. <laughs> I've weirdly done a good job at being able to like showcase that. By no means are we going out of distance, but you, you know what I mean? Where it's just like, uh, you don't know what you don't know. How have you balanced that from like a personal perspective, right? Because that's a lot of pressure and stress to be carrying month after month after month. What do you do to balance, you know, because there's the business and then there's you as a person. And I think, you know, any entrepreneur goes through a phase where they are the business. Good day, you're good. Bad day, you're bad. And it, it it's so easy for that to blur into your personal life. What do you do to somewhat keep them separate? And I know it's a challenge. It's an, it's an ongoing challenge. I don't know anybody who does it perfectly, but... 
what are some of the tactics or things that you do to kind of help create some form of balance to to just I guess keep you sane? Tough question for sure, but yeah, I mean it's it is very difficult to compartmentalize personal and business, um, especially when like your livelihood is solely reliant on this business, right? And so um, when shit hits the fan, you're feeling it. Doesn't matter, you know, if it's nine to five or twelve o'clock in the morning, like you're feeling it, you know. And uh, it's difficult. And I, I for me, I, I, I kind of just like. I try to make it as simple as possible. Yeah, I, I go to sleep early. Um, I'm in bed usually 9.30 to 10 every night, Monday through, or Sunday through Thursday at least. And I, I sleep till probably about like 5.30, 5.45 in the morning. I try my best to get to a workout in the morning, which I, I typically do. And then I, I start my day. But then at night, what I, I, I always eat, I try to eat clean during the week. My my, my thoughts are if I'm going to eat 20 times a week, uh, 20 meals, you know, 17 to 18 of them are going to be real, quote unquote clean, right? Uh, and then I allow myself to kind of deviate from there on the weekends and stuff. And then some some mobility like stretching at, at night. I let that that's one of my main focuses at night before I go to bed because I feel it it decompresses me a little bit, allows me to sleep better. And I I, and I think it all then revolves around my my sleep patterns. And yeah, you know, even with stress, I think I've done a really good job at like really managing my sleep levels um, and my quality of sleep. But those are all things that are in your control, right? It, like I think at the end of the day too, it does just come down to like focusing on the things you can control and, and trying to avoid losing energy on the things you can. It's way harder said than done or uh, done than said. But I, I think that's like where I really try to keep my mindset. It's just like focusing on the things I can control. Um, and again, it, you know, it, it's not easy by any means, but uh, that, that at least allows me to get a little bit more, I guess, peace of mind. It's such a really good answer. And it's um, it's the same thing. It's, it's interesting, right? And you will have seen the kind of this thing around morning routine. And maybe I'm being a little bit X focused here, but there's there's people who really lean into it. There's people who are like, you don't need to cold plunge at 4 a.m. to run a successful business. And I agree with both. You don't need to. But I think one of the things that, you know, to your point, you, you said a really good thing there. It's the things you can control. And I think why do so many entrepreneurs or, you know, people pursuing something lean into some of those things? Like it's that daily structure of the things you can control because you know in the business world that you can't control the outcomes. So I think that grounding of, well, I can get up at this time, I can do these things, whatever they are, whether it's cold plunge or read a book or go to the gym or whatever it is, doesn't really matter. I don't think it has an influence on your success as a business person, but I think it's those foundational routine things that keep you grounded because you can control them. You can control the outcomes of them. That's so important to maintaining some level of life stability because when you open up the laptop or the emails or you get started with your day, you know very few of those variables you can have direct control over the exact outcome that you want to achieve. Yeah, I think like it's very easy to get caught up in like the hustle mentality of entrepreneurship too, uh, which don't get me wrong, like I, I definitely play into it at times because I think like hustling is kind of like my underlying mantra in a sense. I, I grew up like a hustler and I'm always going to be a hustler, right? You it said it, it's like regardless of what happens after Shabby or after me, like you're going to be working on something. You're, you're trying to essentially prove to yourself in some shape or form. But I think at the same time, like not getting lost in that is also really important too. Like I don't need to, I'm not going to feel accomplished if I come here to my office and I work from seven o'clock in the morning till, you know, seven o'clock at night sitting behind my computer. Like that's not going to make me feel accomplished because realistically, I'm not going to be productive that entire time. So like also feel like comfortable with knowing that I don't always have to be by my, my computer and that can break up my day in different ways to where I could have some enjoyment in the middle of the day if I really wanted to, what, knowing that I have the mindset to get back to work, knowing that I need to knock something out before the end of the day. 
And I think having good control on how you could like, you know, kind of separate your day in different type of like tranches, I think is also really important too. And not beating yourself up over like thinking that you need to like be in front of the computer all damn day. Like that's not going to help anybody, let alone yourself. Yeah, I totally agree. I've been through all the phases of doing all the wrong things. So. <laughs> Most of us have, yeah. honestly, right? Yeah. It's easy to get kind of caught up in it. It is. You know, in the early days of Mint, I remember going in on weekends and there wasn't much to do, if I'm honest with you. But I felt compelled to go in and be there in front of my laptop because I was like, well, I should. Because how dare I take time away from this? Maybe some of it was valuable, but I question a lot of it. On the flip side, I think it's also like you can't look at maybe people who have accomplished you know, maybe they're further down the journey than you. What they had to do to get there is very different to what they're doing now. And I think it just requires self-awareness, you know? At the end of the day, what do you want to achieve? And if your inputs are matching your expectations of what you want to get out of it, you're in balance. And if they're not, they're not. And also just understanding that things, it's kind of is a roller coaster, right? Like things could be in balance from one side of it, but not be balanced on the other. And it doesn't necessarily mean you're doing something wrong either. Everything goes through ebbs and flows. And I think like understanding that like the entrepreneurial journey is a perpetual roller coaster ride is very important because for instance, for us, right? Like we're a healthy snack. We happen to be in the heart of holiday season. My expectations are to, you know, beat last year's positioning from a sales perspective and or last months, but also understanding that we are in the slowest time of the year for us. So my expectations have to change based off of that. I can't do my inputs are not going to reflect my outputs like they did in October or September when back to school was our, our best time of the year, right? And so I think understanding that there's, again, there's ebbs and flows and that there's this perpetual roller coaster ride is very important too. Because you won't beat yourself up over, you know, not seeing some of the expectations that you might have, you know, said that weren't necessarily in line with just seasonality. Yeah, totally agree. So Dylan, after initial meet at Venice Gym, we obviously got connected more around digital marketing, right? So being a digital marketer and understand that ecosystem probably gave you some somewhat of a competitive edge when starting the brand from that perspective. Obviously the product side was new to you. What have been kind of your guiding philosophies to marketing for the brand? And what's been the evolution of your marketing efforts to support growth? Specifically with CPG, it's interesting because you know, there's a retail online component. Um, I don't think you're on Amazon yet from what I could see, but that adds another level of complexity. But from your from your digital marketing mindset and experience, like how has that played a role? What have been some of the key things you've done? Um, and just what's been your guiding philosophy? Well, I'll say is like, we're kind of unique in the sense that our product is pretty, is very difficult to manufacture, especially at scale. Um, so I've always been throttled from what I could do digitally. In or because of our inabilities to be, be able to produce enough product. Like when we first launched direct consumer, I mean, we were, I couldn't make, I, I we were crushing. Like, I mean, I was seeing CPAs on Facebook and Instagram that I've never seen before ever in my digital marketing days. And so, you know, I, I think we've done a good job at building brand, creating cool packaging, creating cool brand identity that's helped a lot with just like, you know, getting in front of a lot of consumers. I think where our focus immediately became was just like targeting a specific consumer, i.e. the family, right? Like our, you know, Smucker actually said it best, the the gateway into the entire family's eating habits is through the kid's lunchbox. So we focused all of our attention on how we could get into the kid's lunchbox, knowing that the kid's going to be the one that eats us and they're going to give the validation to the mom and purchasing us. And so online, it's, you know, I think it's a, it's a popular demographic to go after moms and families. But I think if you could harness your messaging and your creativeness enough, like 
it, it's not the most difficult group of consumers to to convert over. So I think that played very very big role for us early on, and that ultimately opened up the opportunity for us to get into retail. And so once retail came into the fold, I had to switch my entire business model. We went from selling direct to consumer only to now grocery and retail uh, distributors. And let me tell you, that was not easy either. Like we were selling a sandwich online for four dollars plus shipping for per sandwich. Uh, whereas transitioning into retail, I can only sell a sandwich for a dollar fifty to a distributor. So figuring out how to just even navigate the balance of like how to calculate our ad spend to what our product now costs and sells for was a bit of a tricky situation. But nonetheless, it it, it ended up working out in a sense. But yeah, we pivoted completely. I just focused on you know geo targeting different grocery stores that we were selling it to to drive trials, drive you know velocity and retention. But it wasn't easy, and it still it still isn't easy. There's a lot of gray area. You know, like you know too well is. You convert somebody on Instagram, Facebook, you immediately see a conversion come up, and now you can track that. Whereas in retail, there's no there's no uh, fluid system of this is what actions I'm doing from a digital marketing perspective. Here's the result. So trying to figure out ways to bridge the gap and also kind of get a, a, a feel or a pulse check on whether or not it's working uh, has definitely created some complexities. But I think we're doing a good job at like kind of proving out what we can prove. Uh, which is exciting, obviously. And we're mostly just seeing that through our, like, our weekly reports from our different grocers that we're in. But uh, Amazon is an interesting one. Um, we're actually launching on Amazon in about a month and a half. This will be our first time selling on Amazon. And we're also launching back on direct consumer, which will be our first time selling direct consumer in 2023. So since 2022. So I'm really excited for that just because it gives me a lot more of what I'm used to, which is going to be fun. But uh, but yeah, I think now because we have a machine and we have the automation set up, I have now the ability to now start you know, kind of expanding our marketing into all these different channels and different opportunities to see where we, you know, have some really good ROI and, and where we're, I think we could like really lean into. That's interesting that you, your, your roots were DTC, but couldn't support it from a scale perspective due to manufacturing. When it's a retail and, and you're in Kroger, Ralph's, Target and, and many more, and now you're going back into digital, you know, that pivot from doing geotargeting kind of awareness campaigns to support retail expansion, now going back to e-commerce. Is, is there a priority? What's driving that decision? And I'm, I'm guessing it's like the scale, your capabilities, because I saw you recently just announced you got your own production line, which I'd love to touch upon actually in a second. How are you going to balance that? And, you know, what's the marketing focal point or is there one when you will ultimately have Amazon physical store locations and an e-commerce site? The, the priority will always be retail, but what we do on digital, as well as anything we do from a marketing perspective, is just to reinforce everything that we're doing in retail. I mean, you know, again, kind of looking at across the bowls and smucker you know they're they're kind of like the the pioneers in the space for me because they've proven that you could have a very successful business just going to retail and so i think for us like why recreate the we be all if we don't necessarily need to and where we see you know we all the dots connect to retail and so anything we do on retail and our direct consumer is really just to reinforce everything that we're doing in retail and, and that's even that's in food service. Uh, that's in marketing activations. My goal is really just like continuing to dive deep into where we have the biggest penetration of retail with opportunities that reinforce it. And online is just a really good way for us to you know drive trial and, and build brand awareness. I, I ultimately love for us to be able to convert consumers direct to consumer at Amazon and then have them become you know, loyal customers into the grocery store near them. That that's the ultimate goal. But I think those levers and understanding also like how to make everything work from the unit economics perspective is also going to be really important. We are again shipping frozen products across the country, so you can imagine it's not the cheapest thing either. So 
making sure that our, our margin is set up for success for retail, I, retail as well as direct to consumer is obviously really important. Yeah, that's really interesting. And again, like that's why I was kind of mentioning CPG. Whilst you can put it into the same categorizations of e-com, Amazon, retail, it's a different beast when you when you factor in like the different manufacturing, the shipping, the cost of shipping, shelf life of products. A consumer journey is different. So let's say it's like I'm a lover of a fashion brand. I can buy it online. I can buy it in a store. That what guides where I buy it from and when is very different to a a consumable product. And I think like one of the challenges from a marketing standpoint is always, well, what's the priority and how do I hold my dollars accountable to that priority? Because especially in the early days, there isn't a priority because you're still figuring out what's working. When you lose some level of scale, I think it becomes a little bit easier because you can, do you see what I mean? You can see the ROI kind of starting start to have an impact. How does that inform kind of like how you set up your marketing teams? I don't know if you work with agencies or anything, but is that more kind of traditional brand marketing, just get the brand out there versus more of an e-commerce funnel because it's really just about awareness and we have these different places for you to purchase from versus I'm trying to drive every action to a CAC or MER or blended ROAS on my my Shopify store. It's difficult to balance for sure. Like for, for us, I definitely outsource agencies first before I bring on a full-time employee. Um, and a lot of it, I think is not necessarily just unique to our product, but you need to CBG, especially that's not cheap, right? Like it costs me a lot of money or, or it did prior to our machine going live to manufacture a single sandwich. So all the money that I raised, all the money that I made always went to operations. So because of that, that stretched our resources and made it so that my core team, which is just me and my two business partners, we had to do everything, right? So we're figuring out the branding and the brand awareness campaigns. We're doing all the Facebook, Instagram marketing, which we've done in the past anyway. So obviously we have some experience there, but then figuring out how to like strategize and hire street teams to help us push demos at at, at store level. How do bringing on merchandisers to help us make sure that our products are on shelf, you know, figuring out uh, in-store coupons and and how to diverse, you know, shoot those out to consumers. Like those were all like very interesting learning experiences for us because we had no idea anything about like shopper marketing. Right. And so I think we have a pretty good pulse on it right now, but where I think like we'll continue to like uh, lead into is just how we could do. And I hate to say it, but like kind of like a, a fast hire, fast fire mentality right now while we're still really lean. Not that I'm trying to bring people on, utilize them and then just fire them, but like an agency, for instance, it's a little bit easier to bring them on and then offboard them if you need to. But I think for us, like staying lean right now and and kind of trying a lot of different things, but not being uh, locked down with like a full-time employee, it's really beneficial for us to be able to move fast. What's your vetting process for agencies? I think that's a lot of brands kind of struggle with that. What's your advice for brands who are thinking about, you know, because as running an agency, I, I'm very fully aware of like the benefits, the downfalls, the stages of a business and when you need an agency versus when you don't. What advice would you give for brands who are listening to this, who are like, do I need an agency? Do I not? I would weigh out like the amount of time and resources it's going to take for you to be able to like, not necessarily master a platform or a channel, but like have a really good understanding of performance on a channel and what it's going to take. Yeah, I think for me, yeah, I, I over the course of the years prior to Chubby, yeah, I had experience from Google AdWords to, you know, like plug and play web development to email marketing to Facebook, Instagram. So like, I thought I, I had a pretty good finger on the pulse in terms of like how, what it was going to take in order to be able to like scale out those platforms. But I think like for a brand or a founder that doesn't have that, I think again, like putting effort into something, but then quickly realizing if it's going to take too much of your time or if it's not. Is a really, you know, I, I think that's an internal situation that you need to uh, just 
kind of be true about. But I do think that like agencies, there are a lot of good agencies out there where I just don't want to set, put myself in a situation is like feeling like I'm in a system where it's just like a template of like one size fits all. And I think you kind of get a pretty good understanding of that when you talk to different agencies, like are they more boutique? Because if they're more boutique, yeah, you might pay a little bit more, but you're going to get a lot higher of a touch point from that agency. Whereas like you talk to one that you know is working with an array of different clients across a bunch of different categories, you kind of quickly understand that like, all right, they're going to throw me into this template and this template's either going to work or it's not going to work. But then also understanding that like, all right, if it is going to work or even if it isn't, like being able to like negotiate that contract to be able to pull the plug if I need to very quickly. And obviously not every situation is going to be the same, but I think having an understanding of where you're willing to spend also where you're willing to just like give it a shot. It's like really important. Um, and for me, I, I, I'd like to think that I'd probably I'd be willing to spend a little bit more just to get a little bit more of like a unique relationship with that with that agency, I think tends to go a longer way. Yeah, makes sense. One of the things um, I've seen a lot of CPG brands do more of, and I, I love seeing it actually, uh, or just brands in general, is uh, is other brand partnerships. And, you know, there's, there's natural benefits of cross-pollination into different audiences and, and stuff like this for one-off launches. It creates a moment around the brand, which I think is always exciting. I don't know if it's too recent, but you did one with Chomps, right? So how did, how did that come about? What was the process of striking the partnership? Was it worth it? And is it part of your go-forward strategy? Yeah, I, actually, this is like, uh, this is really exciting stuff, especially from being like a marketer or like, you know, kind of, an, I guess, my role more on the brand side just because it, it allows you to think outside the box to be creative, right? This is where, this is it, like a, a numbers thing. This is a quality thing, right? And so I think for, for us, when we think about partnerships and collaborations, it's yeah, it's definitely about how we can move the, the brand forward. Specifically the Chops one, I think is interesting because that was a very innocent campaign service level. But if you peel back the layers, it was monumental for us in terms of their, our future. And I'm going to have to give it away because it is what it is. But so I'll, I'll, I guess I'll let me do it back real quick. That that whole relationship started because we were at Expo West, which is a big food show in California. And uh, Chomps employees were there and they were walking around with this, with a microphone attached to one of their meat sticks. And it was like the meat stick, you know, interviewer. And so, and, you know, you go there, you got to kind of be loud and, you know, stand out amongst the other brands that are there. So my dumb ass was walking around in like this big uh, purple furry jacket. And so I stood out like a sore thumb. And so, you know, the, the team came over from Chomps and they're like, oh, we got an interview with the meat stick, yada, yada, yada. And I'm like, all right, yeah, let's do it. So we, we had this little interview. They posted it on Instagram and it, it got some like pretty good views and impressions and whatnot. And uh, it just so happened to be a week before April Fool's Day. And so I immediately DM them after that post went live. And I was like, what are you guys doing for April Fool's? And uh, they're like, oh, let's chat about it. I'm like, all right, cool. So we got like, well, I'm like, I really want to do a hot pocket, better for you hot pocket. And I was like, why don't we just like throw our, our, our bread and our cloud shape and then put your ingredients as well as some like sauce and cheese in there. They're like, let's do it. So surface level, again, it's just a fun uh, campaign to do for April Fool's. We built out a landing page. We did marketing, email campaigns, all of these posts on Instagram, yada, yada, yada. Got all this hype around it. But the reason why we did it is because we eventually want to come out with a better for you hot pocket. And so what better opportunity was there than an April Fool's campaign to just tease the idea of chubby snacks known for PB&Js to go vocal about potentially jumping into a new category uh, and seeing if our our audience, if our consumers are here for chubby snacks to make that type of horizontal uh, transition eventually. And yeah, I mean, it would be, the results were overwhelming to say the least. I mean, the amount of hate mail that we got from people because they were pissed off that we were actually not 
launching this product. And I was like, holy shit, like, dude, this is this is groundbreaking for us. Because again, like I'm fully in our PBJs. I don't know when the hell we potentially could come out with Hot Pocket. Better be Hot Pocket even if we did. But that opened my eyes to see that our consumers are essentially giving us permission to do things that are outside of PB&Js. And so when I think about collaborations and campaigns and partnerships, I do think about it in the sense of, yes, brand moment for sure. But if I launch this collaboration with this jam company or this nut butter company or, or this chocolate hazelnut company, is there an opportunity for me to have that product then live in our portfolio products in retail? And if the results from our direct consumer limited edition run on that are high, you know, that's a really good understanding of whether or not this could potentially succeed in, in retail and create, you know, obviously a, a bigger moat around our brand. That's really smart. A bit yeah. long-winded, but that's the thought process. No, I love that. <laughs> Sorry. I saw the picture of you actually at Expo West on your LinkedIn. You looked great, mate. You looked... You looked... <laughs> um, I appreciate it. And the PBNJ pimp, so... <laughs> okay, okay. okay. If, if you need any supporting characters next year, just let me know. I'll, I'll suit up for you. I'll buy the flag. <laughs> All right. I might have to hold you to that. What I like a lot about that is something I, I say a lot about brands or, or two brands is like, you know, and, and I think like younger marketers are more familiar with this, but I think there's a mindset where, I mean, fast track or backtrack, excuse me, not too long ago, the consumer was somebody who you didn't really know a lot about and there wasn't an easy way of communicating with them. And it almost felt like, well, we're the brand, you're the consumer. Do you see what I mean? There was like some level of segregation uh, between the two. And it's like through social media and, uh, you know, I think like just more of a desire and realization that you can get a very immediate direct feedback loop into almost anything you're doing, thinking, wanting to do or trying. Uh, if you just open yourself up as a brand to doing that. And I think like you do it you just mentioned a really great example of it and i think like more brands probably should lean into that willingness to just communicate with the consumers because they will tell you what they like what they don't like what they want and like testing things like that can really have like meaningful impact on how you think about the future of a brand whether it's you know it could be a variety of things whether it informs future kind of like products whether it informs like well just what do you like that we're doing as a brand and i i think that's one way of doing it that's a really interesting unique uh, way of doing it but like bring that down to a base level just how you talk to your consumers through your email through your sms through your social media platforms i think is so important and i see that you know so a lot of brands talk about just how they use those channels to, it just it doesn't just inform you but it builds a relationship with your consumers that just helps when it comes to retention loyalty and, and everything else most definitely I, I think it also just like creates vulnerability from the brand's perspective too like consumers want to know that like a brand is, is a specific size or that they're dealing with x and y and z reasons like look at smile direct club just just this week went bankrupt they closed all operations but they had like a bunch of their their clients and consumers that were on like these six month programs, like to get their teeth fixed, and and they just closed the door without any type of notice. It's like that that should never really happen, realistically. Like if you're transparent with your your audience, and I think like you brought up a really good point, the feedback loop, right? Having the ability to make it a two way conversation is really important, and asking the hard questions and telling your your audience like the the, the truth of the matter, I think just goes a long way with like making your brand look more human. And uh, and there was one instance for us where, you know, we'd be up, our, our Brett, my business partner, he runs our customer service too. And so I think like brands always respond incredibly well when they see co-founder 
and the signature line. And that's something that we never really thought about. There's not even much scalability there, but the fact that he is answering emails and taking time out of his day to answer those emails is, is huge. And I remember one day some lady got mad because like a product showed up and it was like soggy or something. And you know, we always do money back guarantee, no problem. We'll give you back your money. But the fact that she thought that our company was like this massive company, like of like, you know, maybe anywhere from like a hundred employees on. And when she found out that there was only three of us, her reaction and her mood immediately changed. Where it's like, oh my God, like she actually offered for us not to even then uh, refund her. And we're like, no, 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 no. like we're gonna refund you. There's no problem there. But the fact that she just there was a compassion associated with her response after finding out that we're still a small team was just like a, oh, an eye-opening experience. And that that was a very clear indication that if you create a relationship with your your uh, customers, like there's a really good chance that they're going to continue to be loyal with you, even when you know, things kind of hit, sh- hit the fan, you know? Um, and I think that's like super powerful. 100% agree. I think that's a great, great point as uh, for any brand, especially younger brands, right? Who rely on that even more than maybe the bigger, bigger brands. Totally. And then just to kind of follow up on that real quick, uh, when we first launched, we launched in a farmer's market in addition to online. And I would go to this farmer's market every Saturday morning with Brett and John sometimes. And we would, you know, just go there, we'd sell our sandwiches. And like, yeah, every week, same people would walk by. Some people would come and buy them. And then sometimes they don't come back the next weekend or the weekend after to buy. And it's like, hmm, I guess they didn't really like it. But then we would just, you know, force ourselves to do the hard things. And we'd see that person who bought the first time, but then didn't buy again. And we'd be like, hey, man, like, just tell us all the bad things that you didn't like about the product. Like, why didn't you buy again? And you just have to, like, kind of take those, you know, those critiques to the face and just accept it and just make changes and reiterate and then relaunch. But you're only going to find any of those things out is if you include the consumer. Um, and at the end of the day, it's, all it's going to do is make you and your brand even better. Dylan, I thought I could chat for ages, but I've got two two closing questions, two closing questions for you. I'd frame the question as has there, but I'll say what was, (laughs) what was the time, you know, across your journey of building a brand where you just thought everything was all over and how did you overcome that? I vividly remember uh, a time when my dad came to visit and uh, I was like, I I was pretty much, I was out of money. And I remember like just crying to, I never cried about business at that point. And I just, I just couldn't help myself because the weight of stress and pressure being that early on the business and not knowing how to handle that was so difficult. And I, I felt bad because my dad, he was a blue collar worker growing up. Like he, he, you know, worked at a power plant my entire life. So like he, he didn't know anything about entrepreneurship. He's never dealt with any of these types of stresses or pressures and he didn't really have any answer for me, but you know, just his willingness to let me vent and just like talk these things out was I needed that more than anything. And I didn't you know, realize I needed that. And so what I'll say is like, I, I think like there's always going to be difficult times, but how you allow yourself to be vulnerable and talk about these things, even if you don't really have somebody to talk, talk to about it is really the important in terms of just like staying even keel. Being a founder and entrepreneur is incredibly lonely. Like there's, there's no other way to explain it. And like, honestly, it could get me choked up just thinking about some of those situations, but like, I don't know, ha- having the willingness to just like be vulnerable and just like, Accept the fact that it's fucking hard. But like, if you have the abilities and the willpower to continue to push forward, um, there's ways to find uh, resolve in you know some difficult situations. Um, and I know it's not really like a black or white answer, but I think like just very, being very in touch with your feelings and your emotions to you know not following shit up is is really important. I love that. That's really powerful. I appreciate you sharing that as well. 
you know, as an entrepreneur or building the brand, what do you derive the most joy from? I think it's actually like my, my team. So Brett runs all the operations and all the logistics supply chain. John runs all the sales and finance. And I think like seeing enjoyment from Brett, because Brett's been in the weeds the most out of anybody in the, the business. I mean, when we had the, the commercial kitchen in downtown LA, you know, we had two shifts going every day in a 500 square foot room with, you know, I think like 25 employees at the height of it. And he had to manage all of them. You know, he kind of like had all the shits, you know, like he was dealing with all the shitty stuff. And so seeing him and John in different ways, just be able to like get excitement over like problem solving and like just be in it for long enough to where we could see the light at the end of the tunnel is like incredibly glorifying. I'm mostly because they're learning at an exorbitant rate, right? I, I mean, we always say that starting this business and doing this business is a master's degree on steroids, right? And knowing who they were as individuals prior to getting into Chubby with me and seeing who they are today in terms of what their skills are and like, I guess the amount that people seek out them for advice is, yeah, that's one of the best things I've ever experienced just because, and not, not that I take any possession in that or ownership in that, but like the fact that like my stupid idea of coming up with a paper jelly sandwich has allowed these two guys to essentially harness new skills and become thought leaders and experts in frozen foods is is by far one of the coolest things I've ever experienced. Love that. That's an amazing response. Uh Dylan, congrats on everything you've built with Chubby. Again, I know I know the future. I know you have big aspirations for the brand and I'm sure you continue, especially with the mindset, right? That I've always known you to have from from my kind of like interactions with you and you've kind of spoke about it a bit today. So congrats on on everything you're building, everything you've built. Really appreciate you making time to come on to the podcast and kind of talk through it. Do you have anything else you want to say to close? Well, one, I want I want to thank you for the platform as well. I, I think it's uh it, it's it's very rewarding to be able to talk about these things in uh in an open format like this. I, I think uh, a lot of entrepreneurship gets kind of misconstrued as this whole like, you know, beautiful, cool kind of thing. And at the end of the day, it's not. It, it actually truly sucks. But, you know, I think there's ways to look internal and, and find reasons to be incredibly excited about whatever it is that you're doing. And I think a lot of it comes down to problem solving. Um, and again, being okay with making imperfect decisions and leading with that intuition. And, and so I guess what I could say is just stay true to those things. Like, if you got is telling you one thing, like nine times out of ten, it's probably accurate. And then you know, knowing that like trusting yourself is going to lead to potentially good things within the business is, you know, it's something that you can build on. And so, really lean into the intuition and in that ability to make imperfect decisions. That there's a good chance there's a really good response to that or result in it is incredibly powerful and way more powerful than I ever imagined. So I, I hope that in some shape or form that has come across to anybody that is listening. But I I, I think that. It's ever going to be linear. It's always going to be that perpetual roller coaster ride. Um, but holding on for your life and and going along with the ride is actually a lot of fun, even though it does, you know, kind of suck at times. A hundred percent aligned. Um, and I think it's it's really good of you to come on and kind of had that have that, you know, willingness to be vulnerable and super transparent about the journey because I think, um, you know, we all love celebrating other people's successes, but the the things that it requires to get to those levels is is exactly as you kind of outlined. So, uh, Dylan, once Perfect again, so. thank you so much, mate. Really appreciate your time. Um, looking forward to diving into my chubby snacks as well when they arrive. Um, there we go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You, you I, I don't have a lunchbox, but you, uh, you've got, you've got. You've, you're about to have being a consumer. You have a daughter though. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Awesome. Thanks so much, mate. Thank you, Daniel.